Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. It's kind of a big weekend if you're a football fan. Not only did the Titans upset the top-seeded Ravens yesterday in front of 70,000 Baltimore fans, I think that's what makes it great is, the, is, you know, we can't root for the Falcons around here because there's not really anything to root for, so we've got to root for something. Uh, so the Titans will do. Uh, 70,000 Baltimore fans watched their team lose. Tomorrow night's a little bitty old football game, right? I predict the Tigers will win. You can put money on it. Talk about a home field advantage, though, in New Orleans there at the Superdome. If your Tigers are purple and gold, you have got a, uh, you got a good day coming to you tomorrow. 75,000 fans will gather right there at the stadium. They predict somewhere between 28 and 30 million people will turn on their televisions tomorrow night to watch that little football game uh, take place. It's really quite interesting when you consider the scale of that sport, though, right? Uh, just consider the number of people that it actually takes to, to make a football team function. If you're a college football team, the NCAA says you can have 125 players on their roster, only allowed to give out 85 scholarships. When you add the coaching staff, I believe the NCAA regulations allow one head coach and I think nine assistants, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you add all that, you add all the trainers in, but the reality is, is it takes a lot of folks to make a football team work, but it is a ridiculously small fraction of the, the total picture, of, of the number of people on the field, the number of people on the sidelines, the number of people with medical bags, all those folks added in. It is really a small fraction of the total number of fans who will boldly declare after a victory what? We won! The majority of we's had nothing to do with the victory. An overwhelming majority of the we's had nothing to do with the victory. The NFL has an even smaller on-the-field number. Only 53 players are allowed to be on the roster, but again, millions and millions of people each and every week will watch these guys on television. Hundreds of thousands will fill their stadiums and pay awful amounts of money for tickets. And when the victory happens, man, there are high fives and hugs and celebrations and shouts for victory. I'm sure yesterday at sports clubs and sports bars and homes all across the Nashville area, people were getting excited. Why? Because we won, right? We get to go to the next, the next level of playoffs. We get to, go to, the, we get to advance. But let's just say it this way. It is a highly highly disproportionate number of fans to players. I fear that we've taken our status as fans and we've applied the same principle to the kingdom of God. Lots of folks wear the colors. They cheer on the team. But if they're honest, they've never, ever, ever put on a helmet or picked up a ball. They never even went out for the practice squad. 
They watch for the comfort of their seats. They know that in front of them there is a struggle for victory that is taking place. They know to cheer for the correct team. But for a whole host of reasons, they never leave the bleachers and take the field. I'm hoping that today, that if you're one of those fans, that you will consider that this is the day that you leave the bleachers and take the field. And, and honestly, it all begins not with the hordes of unbelievers. We know there's a, there's a pile of unbelievers around us. They're everywhere. It doesn't begin because that's an overwhelming picture. It begins with one, one person in your life that God has impressed upon you. Back when my oldest son was in middle school, I got to kind of help coach his, his football team, pretty good team. Um, a lot of times I found myself coaching the offensive line. Uh, I enjoyed working with those big heavy fellas. They're they a fun group of guys to kind of to work with there on the, on the O-line because really their job was pretty simple. They, they really needed to know two things each and every single time the ball was snapped. Which way the play was going and which way they were blocking. That was it. That was really all they needed to know. So it didn't matter what route was being ran by the wide receivers. It didn't matter if it was an in and out or a crossing route. It didn't matter any of those things. What mattered is which way are we going and which way are we blocking. And it's easy for young players on the football field to, if you're a young offensive lineman, it's, it's easy to kind of get overwhelmed. You're up there on the line and you realize there are 11 guys and their single objective is to run over you and get to the guy with the ball. Right? I mean, you're just an obstacle if you're that alignment. That's all you're there for. It's easy to get overwhelmed with that, with that idea, but, but one of the things we tried to communicate to those, to those young guys taking that offensive line in, in that capacity for the first time is, is, man, your only responsibility is the guy coming through this gap or this gap. That's it. Your only responsibility is this gap or that gap, depending on which way the play was going. And, and because there's 11 guys, all 11 of them aren't coming through that one gap. And so most of the time, 99% of the time, they were responsible for what? Just one guy. Just one guy. That was what they were, that was their job. Just one guy. Isn't it something how true that is for us. Who's your one this morning? Who's your one assignment? What is that one person the Lord is impressing upon you today who needs to hear the good news of the gospel? If you've got your Bible this morning, I would ask you to open to Luke's gospel, the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter of Luke's gospel, we begin today in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. I would ask if you found your place and you're able, would you please stand with me in reference to the reading of God's word? On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea from Jerusalem. 
And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. God, thank you for these men, for their example. May they challenge and encourage each of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As you consider these four men, it's evident that these men were, were on a mission. They were on a mission. You know, that's an interesting word, mission. It used to be a pretty churchy word. Uh, a, a mission was a, a way of describing the work of a missionary. What is your mission? Maybe a mission like we talked about a couple of weeks ago where the Brainerd Mission and their, their ministry to the Cherokee Indians closed about 40 years before our church was founded. But over the time, mission has taken on some other definitions, a broader scope of meaning, and an astronaut on a mission to the moon, or, or more recently, a robot on a mission to Mars. A covert CIA agent may be on a mission to infiltrate a, an enemy country. You know, companies are all about missions today. All about their mission statement. That's how they express their mission. What are we about? What drives us? What is our primary objective? Instagram is the, the picture-sharing sharing social network. If you're a, a grandparent or a parent and you're wondering where your children are because you don't see them on Facebook anymore, it's because they're over on Instagram. So go there so they'll leave Instagram and go somewhere else. Instagram is an interesting network, but their mission statement is this, to capture and share the world's moments. To capture and share the world's moments. And, and that's exactly what they do. I mean, I could get my phone out right now. I could take a, an ussy, right? That's what it is when it's more than just a selfie. Take an ussy with all you guys, capture the moment, and put it on Instagram. When you post pictures of your dinner, or your workout, or your kids, or the sunset, you're doing exactly what Instagram has said they want you to do, capture those moments. And I'm sure one day they'll catalog all that and sell it and use it against us, but right now that's what they're doing. They want to just capture those moments, and I enjoy looking at what some of our folks post on, on there. When you look at Jesus, you even recognize that Jesus had a mission. Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter, verse 10 Jesus gives us his mission statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's his mission statement. It wasn't a, a long, bulleted mission statement. It was simple and concise. To come and seek and save that which is lost. 
These men in our passage today have a defining mission. It's simple. If you were to ask these guys when they are one on each corner of the stretcher and they are walking to the house where Jesus is, they, you say, guys, what are you doing? And their mission's simple. What? We want our friend to walk. We want our friend to walk. That's a compelling mission, right? It was limited in scope, but that was a compelling mission. We want our friend to walk. Let me ask you a question. What's your mission? What's your mission today? What is that controlling vision in your life? Maybe it's to make sure that you leave a, a healthy inheritance to your children. This is where you nudge your parents if they're nearby. Maybe it's to spend all the inheritance before your children get it. This is where you nudge your children back. Seriously, when it comes to the things of God, what is it that drives you? You all got up today and you, you made a decision to come to church. What was the drive in that decision? What made you want to come to church today? Perhaps you're here because you feel the need to check the box for the week. I went to church, so I'm a pretty good person. I get my points for this week. Perhaps you're here because someone made you feel guilty for not being here. I mean, I mean this with all the love in my heart. But if your driving motivation in the kingdom of God is guilt mitigation, then you've got a pretty lousy understanding of the gospel and a pretty shallow picture of God. If that's what's driving you is to, is to mitigate guilt then you've missed so much. Jesus didn't die so you could have salve on a guilty conscience or so you could feel good about yourself for spending a couple of hours at church on Sunday morning. Jesus died because he wants to be involved in your life in an intimate, personal, day-to-day, minute-to-minute relationship that goes beyond the church hour on Sunday. It steps into your workplace on Monday, your classroom on Monday. It follows you with every step you take and every breath you breathe. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you every second of your life. So why are you here? When it comes to the kingdom of God, what is it that is driving you. The men in our passage today had a very compelling mission. It pushed them to some pretty dramatic means to accomplish their mission. But I wonder, do you have a kingdom vision that is so compelling that you would come to the same conclusion as our friends in our passage today? Do you have a vision for that one person in your life that more than anything in this world, you need to get that person to the feet of Jesus? Who is that person? Who's your one? We, we also know, secondly, these guys had, a, had an eager expectation. They had an eager expectation. These guys wanted to see their friend walk. 
Maybe you've had somebody like that where they've been in a, in a, in a car accident or they've been sick, and you want, nothing more, you want more than nothing in this world than for those guys to, to walk. You want that friend to walk. But these guys had an expectation that if they could just get him in front of Jesus, that Jesus would do what only Jesus can do, that Jesus would heal him, and their mission would be accomplished, that he would allow the, him to walk. And, and that's a huge step of faith. It's a huge step of faith for these guys. There were no guarantees. Jesus wasn't advertising a healing service like so many of the charismatic churches do today. He wasn't offering sweat-drenched hankies for sale for a generous contribution to his ministry. This text sounds like he was kind of in an argument, debating back and forth with these religious leaders. It wasn't one of those preaching moments up on the mountain where he's given the Beatitudes or, or those kind of things. I mean, it sounds like he was in the trenches dealing with these guys that, that really didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But these guys had a, had a huge confidence, an eager expectation that Jesus would do what only Jesus could do. They had a clearly defined mission, and they had expectations that Jesus was the means by which their mission would be fulfilled. When I think of what they've done, one word comes to mind, and that's, Man, that's risk, right? That's risk. Going to get the friend, making the journey to Jesus. No guarantees of outcome. There were no promises that this man would be healed. No guarantees beyond the, 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 the faith. And the Bible's full of moments like this. Man, you go back and read the Old Testament, and the Bible is full of these stories. I think of Joshua and the, and the walls of Jericho. I mean, what was the battle plan that God gave them? Take all of your heavy artillery and lay down bombardments against the walls of Jericho day in and day out until you breach the walls. And once you've breached the walls, you can then rush in. That wasn't the plan. The battle plan was march around the city and they did a defined moment. Y'all scream really loud. <laughs> you sure, Lord? That doesn't sound like a great military strategy, Lord. Can't we bring in the bombers, lay down cover fire? Can't we send snipers inside and take out the guards and lower the gates? Can't we come up with something, Lord, that's better than march around and holler? Nope. That's what I want you to do. A risk. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they're on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal, they circle up and they gather. They're trying to get, get Baal to respond, and he does. And Elijah mocks him, taunts him. Shout louder. Maybe he's busy. He's asleep. He's not listening to you. And then Elijah's turn comes up, and there's a risk, right? Uh, set my offering up. Matter of fact, soak it with water. Why not? There's a risk because Elijah's stepping out of faith. There were no guarantees that God would lap up that water and burn that offering. But Elijah stepped out in faith, and God did. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the furnace. One outcome of that event could have been they get cooked in the furnace, right? I mean, that could have happened, but that's not what happened. They took a risk, and God responded. Peter stepping out of the boat. We actually see his faith and his failure in the same event. He steps out. He's on the waves. He's walking on the water with Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus and focuses on the storm, and he starts to sink. But I promise you that first step out of the boat was a, was a risk. I've stepped off the side of the pool before, and I have a 100% 100 
success rate of sinking. Peter had been a fisherman a long time. He'd fallen in the water more times than he could count, and he, can, he knows that every time he falls in that water, he's got to swim. Risk. But in all these times when that risk was taken, God did something remarkable. When's the last time you took a risk? You stepped out in faith, trusting that God was, was in it, that God was moving, that God was calling, that this is where God wanted you to be. I mean, we believe all these things, right? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Last summer, we had an opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to take a vacation, and, and we were down in the Dominican Republic. Is that picture up there? So we were, we were down in the Dominican Republic, and uh, this was a, an interesting thing that they have. It's a, it's a little narrow canyon. At, at its widest, it's probably no wider than this section of pews. And it's very tall. I mean, there are places where the, the, the cliffs are higher than even the balcony. And there are places where the goal is for you to jump from a platform that's up there into this little narrow canyon that's down here. And the water's full of limestone, so you don't get to see the bottom. And again, I learned a long time ago that it's not wise to jump into water that you can't see the bottom of, right? Because you don't know what's lurking down there. But you get up there on that platform, and all the guys are like, no, go ahead and jump, it's safe. And I hear him saying, it's safe. I watched somebody else jump into the murky water, and they didn't shatter both of their legs. But in order for me to put what they've told me into practice... I can't just stand on the platform and say, I agree with you. I, I believe you. In order to demonstrate that I actually believe what they're saying, what do I have to do? I got to jump off that cliff into that murky water. And guess what? It's 20 feet deep. There were no rocks, and it was great. It was awesome. When's the last time you took the risk for the kingdom of God. I love how one preacher said it. He said, if it's, if it's just doctrine in your head, if the truths are just here, if they never make it here, listen, you're not really following Jesus. You are being consumed with information, but the gospel transforms minds it transforms hearts, and it propels feet. So many of us have heads that are full of all the things we're supposed to know. We went to Sunday school as a child. We learned all the Bible stories. We, we can quote the Ten Commandments. If not quote, we can at least list them off without a lot of work. We know the time the church meets. We even read our church bulletin. But all it is, is knowledge between our ears, and it really hasn't affected our hearts. Do we expect God to move? What happens when those guys get to Jesus, though? They get to the house where Jesus is. I mean, you got four guys carrying a stretcher. I'm sure it was a sight. They get to the door, and the door is, is packed 
Huge obstacle. Jesus is up at the front. He's engaging with guys in the front of the room, which means that when they get to the door, they find that it's standing room only. People are listening through the, through the windows. You know, they're, they're listening out in the yard because there's no room for anything else. And when it's standing room only, I don't know. I've never done this, but I suspect that if you try to take a stretcher into a room that's standing room only, that you're probably going to get some mean looks. And so they get there, and, and there's no room. There's no possible way in this moment to get this man to Jesus. And you've got to ask yourself a very critical question in this moment. What would you do right here? Your mission's been to see your friend walk. You expect that Jesus could do something about it. But you get to the place where you've got the opportunity to bring him to Jesus, and there's a huge obstacle in the way. What do you do right there? What's your answer to the predicament? How do you deal with the obstacle? I wonder how many of us would look at the obstacle and say something like this. Well, brother, this looks like the Lord closed this door. This door's shut. And we, we fall back in our, in our sanctified approach to life. It's just the Lord's will that we don't get this brother in front of him to, to be healed. The door's shut. We'll just wait for an open door. The Lord's not ready for us to take this step. He's not ready for him to be healed. But you know what we're actually saying when we get there and we say the door's closed? You know what we're doing? When we say that we're looking for an open door, what we're really saying is, Lord, I'd like the path of least resistance. Right? Because that's easy. I mean, that's, that's simple. It's, it, it doesn't require much thought. It doesn't require much effort. Lord, give me the path of least resistance. But if you'll notice when we read our Bibles that that, that kind of open-door, closed-door mentality isn't altogether present in the Scriptures. Listen, for example, to Paul's description of his ministry from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I'm going to tell you, a shipwreck's a pretty closed door in my book. On frequent journeys, he says, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in the cold and exposed, and apart from the other things... There's the daily pressure of me of anxiety for all the churches. I've been a pastor a while. I've never described a day that way before. I don't know about you, but if that sounds like a pretty closed door, right? I mean, getting beat, whipped with a with a whip, hunger. Danger of being robbed, danger of being beaten, danger of all these things, sleepless nights. I mean, we see all that. We say, man, brother, you went through some closed doors. It's not that the doors were closed. It's just that along the way, he encountered some obstacles that he had to deal with. And besides, if this was Paul's open door, I sure would hate to see his closed door. These friends here are showing us something that we need to remember. Sometimes when we can't get in the front door... Sometimes we got to dig a hole in the roof. Sometimes when you can't get in that front door because there's too many people, it's too crowded, I can't get in, the door's shut. Well, let's think about whether we or not we can dig a hole in the roof. 
A closed door isn't necessarily a locked door, and when you encounter that door, you might have to improvise. You need to go back to the mission. What's our mission? To see our friend walk. Go back to the expectation that Jesus is the one who can do something about this. Now we've got obstacles. What are the obstacles? I don't know. Let's see if we can overcome it, though. We know what, what, what our mission is. We know what Jesus can do. Let's overcome all those obstacles that are in the way. And we have to anticipate obstacles when it comes to sharing our faith. Listen, Satan wants nothing more than for you to be terrified of sharing your faith. He wants nothing more than for you to be petrified of what happens when you open your mouth and share the gospel. Satan doesn't want the church to share its testimony. He wants the church to be silent because we're afraid of the cost, we're afraid of the consequences, but I can assure you you're going to face those obstacles because Satan doesn't want you to have that gospel conversation with your one. But you have to own the obstacle, own the ridicule, own the challenge, and overcome. But look what happens. These guys had a simple mission to see their friend healed. They had expectation that Jesus could do it. They had obstacles to overcome, which they did in a pretty creative way, unless you're a roofer, unless you own the house that they dug through. Look what happens. They got way more than what they bargained for, right? We need to pay attention here. The mission for these guys was that their friend would walk. But when their friend got before the Lord, what did Jesus do? He told him to get up and walk. And that wasn't the first thing he said. First thing he said is what? Your sins are forgiven. Those men, his friends, they thought the man's greatest need was mobility. They saw Jesus as the way to meet that need. But what Jesus saw in that man is that his greatest need was not that which was seen, but that which was unseen. The man on the stretcher who couldn't walk also had a heart condition, and he needed his heart changed. And this is true for each and every single one of us today. Listen, the most and the greatest need that you and I have, the greatest need that anyone has, the greatest need that your one has, is not an external tweaking. It's not the fixing of an external issue. We don't need an external tweak. We need a heart change. We need our hearts rearranged so God can mold us back into who God wants us to be. God's not after a slightly modified, tweaked life. He's after a changed life that's changed only through the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus looked at this man on the stretcher, he realized that the inner disposition was the most important part of this man's story, not the external circumstance. And Jesus does his greatest work on the heart. At some point, we're all the ones on the mat. We're all that guy. Some of you even here today may realize that you're on the mat right now. 
And the reason your friend or your spouse keeps dragging you to church is because they know your greatest need right now is not some sort of external tweak. Your greatest need right now is that your heart be changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're dragging you to church because they want you to know Jesus as Savior. They've had a mission to see that you meet Jesus and that you've over, they've overcome all kinds of obstacles to make sure that you meet him. They've met closed doors, but they're digging holes in the roof to make sure that you have an opportunity to see Jesus. In just a moment, if you're here, you're that person, I'm going to give you a chance to finally see their mission pay off by giving you the chance to meet Jesus. Who's your one? Is it a parent? A spouse? A child? A co-worker? A classmate? A neighbor? You see, when Jesus called his disciples, he said he would give them a new occupation. When he came to those first disciples we talked about last week, he said that they would stop fishing for fish and they would start fishing for men. Jesus has the very same expectation for each and every single one of us as well. In closing, I want to share a story about fish. It came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes that were filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, those who call themselves fishermen met in meetings. They talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about the task of fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation. They declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of a fisherman. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing, for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans, displayed them on big, beautiful banners, these fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and that every fisherman should fish. But the one thing they didn't do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized the board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. They hired staff, appointed committees, and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members didn't fish. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered in the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. 
Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given the fishing license that they were hoping for. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with many fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and prayed over and sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they didn't fish. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between a good and a bad fisherman. Other felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were were surely enough. Now it's true. Many fishermen sacrificed. They put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every single day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen. Yet they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not really fishermen at all. No matter how much they claimed to be, yet it did sound correct. If a person is a fisherman and he never fishes, Year after year, is he really a fisherman? Or more plainly stated, is one really following if he really isn't fishing? The Lord says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Would you pray with me, please? God, I come before you today Lord, just to humbly acknowledge that this is an area where we've probably dropped the ball You've called us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You've asked us to be fishers of men. Yet I wonder how many of us never, ever, ever put a line in the water. We meet an obstacle and we say the door's closed. And we try to follow the path of least resistance. In spite of the fact that, Lord, that you tell us that this life was going to be full of trouble. And we should expect resistance every time we turn around. If we choose to follow Jesus. And so, God, I, I pray that you would put a new burden in our hearts for the lost in our midst for those fish that are still in the water in our parable, that you would burden us for our neighbors, for our classmates, for our coworkers, that you would burden us for our spouses, for our children, for our parents. And God, that it would be very clear 
in our mind what our mission is, who our one is, who is the one that we need to bring to the Lord. Who's the one whose greatest need right now it's not that he's on a mat and that he can't walk, it's that he's got a heart that's rotten from sin and he needs Jesus to forgive his sin. Lord, give us a name today. But not just a name, give us a plan and opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.